Okay, I'm back in the courthouse with Will Harris at White Oak Pastures, and today we're going to talk about the true meaning of regenerative farming and giving back to the land, and that's our focus today. Hi, Will. Hey, Kristen. How are you? I'm doing all right. Yeah. Well, you already know that because we've been hanging out all day. Uh, Will has taken us all around, and, and we've seen so much. That it, it never ends here at White Oak Pastures, but... We got to focus on the land today, and we've learned a lot about another part of farming, not not just the certified humane, but what it does for the land and how the land is fortified over and over again, something that never happens in factory farming because there is no land in factory farming. So, well, something that we touched on today was reductive Reductive versus uh, reductive regenerative. Versus, reductive versus uh, holistic. And regenerative. Yeah. Yes, and regenerative. But <clears throat> so, so guys, when we're just talking in layman's terms, let's think about farmland that is constantly being treated chemically for weeds or infestation or whatever. That kind of farmland is uh becomes barren and, and non-productive and non-nutrient rich and it cycles out so to speak right and it doesn't it's not able to produce crop so when that happens the reason that it's so bad is because it sort of renders the soil useless yes you can't it, grow anything out of it, it the, the soil ceases to become a living biome it becomes a dead mineral medium a living biome, a healthy soil is full of microorganisms that all live in symbiotic relationships with each other. And these microorganisms uh, that we don't see in factory farms, obviously, but it can happen anywhere if you're not giving back to the land. And an example of, of what goes on here at White Oak Pastures and I think we talked about this a little bit in our other podcast, but nothing is wasted. Blood from cows is given back to the land here. It's put back into the land. Obviously, the, the cows are stepping on their own manure and putting it back into the land, which fortifies the dirt and makes more to graze on later. Can we sort of really simply talk about that cycle, like from beginning to end? So what you referred to as reductive farming practices mm -hmm. are farming practices that break the cycles of nature. The, that would be things like chemical fertilizers and pesticides and tillage. And in animal livestock, it would be subtherapeutic antibiotics and hormone implants. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> These tools that reductive science have given us break the cycles of nature. The cycles of nature would be, as examples, the carbon cycle, where greenhouse gases are breathed in by the plant through photosynthesis, and the carbon is, much of it is pumped beneath the soil, growing roots, and it's, and it's sequestered there. That, that carbon will be in the soil for a long, long, long time. Uh, the energy cycle, you know, the sun puts radiation in the form of sunlight 
on every acre of land, every day, every year. And you either have photosynthesizing tissue out there absorbing all that bandwidth of energy, or you don't. And, and then you want to, then the goal here is to capture that energy. Uh, there's the mineral cycle. You have minerals in the soil being given up by rocks that are breaking down. Microbes literally pull minerals out of a rock, a stone, same way that lichens grows on a boulder, pulls the minerals out. Mm. And we've learned that those microbes actually chemically trade that positively charged ion of mineral for uh, sucrose that the, that the plant is made through photosynthesis from sunlight and greenhouse gases. It's a symbiotic relationship. They both benefit, the microbe and the plant. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> There's the carbon cycle. I mentioned the carbon cycle. There's the water cycle. So in a healthy soil that's been farmed regeneratively, Carbon is sequestered in the soil in the form of organic matter. <clears throat> and 1% organic matter will absorb a one-inch rain event. It's about 20,000 gallons of water mm -hmm. on an acre of land. Like what we were talking about earlier? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> and here, our organic matter has gone from a half of 1% to 5%. Wow. So our land will now absorb a five-inch rain event. When it was a half an inch, it would only absorb a half-inch rain event. When, when something only absorbs a half-inch rain event, what happens to the water? Does it just become runoff, and where does it go? And does it, it, it take chemicals with it when it goes in other... Good, good question. It does, it does become runoff. It causes flooding downstream, and it carries the topsoil with it, and it also carries any chemical fertilizer or pesticide that was in that topsoil. That's how we got that big dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Right, is, right. Uh, the the uh, runoff from farmland. You know, you've got many, many other cycles going on out there uh, that some of them we probably don't even know about. Sure. But regenerative agriculture restarts those cycles of nature so that uh, the, the, the biome, the, the uh, system operates properly. And when the system operates pro properly, it generates an abundance. You know, all that oil and gas and coal that's in the ground mm -hmm. that we've been digging out for the last 80 years, mm -hmm. that is a function of the abundance of nature when all the cycles were operating properly in the era of the dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. It sequestered all that carbon. Mm -hmm. And it's energy now, and we're burning it, and we re-release that carbon. So it's, you know, the cycles of nature are just a beautiful thing. It really is, and it works so perfectly out here. Um, you know, I encourage you guys to come out here so you can see these words and these explanations in action because it becomes so much more clear, and it really changes how you think about what you eat and where it's coming from. That more importantly than anything, where it's coming from. Now, we were out here a little bit ago watching some cows and seeing them graze the land, and they'll get moved, but when they're grazing the land and also eliminating on the land, but they're out there in nature and in sun, and it's just, it's constant activity. So they're creating almost like a natural... Uh, 
turbulence on top of the soil and, and when they eliminate, they're putting their own nutrients back into the soil and then they'll get moved to a different location and, and that soil will produce new grazing material, right? Correct. So, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> cows are ruminants. You know, uh, other ruminants are sheep and goats and, and others. And they don't digest their food the way monogastrics like you and I do. Right. You know, we have uh, a secrete acid in our stomachs that breaks down the food that we eat. In the case of ruminants, they have, they're like a, a, a 50 gallon fermentation chamber. That's their stomach. And in every cow, in every adult cow, a yep. 50 gallon <clears throat> chamber, you guys, that's yeah. a lot. It's called a rumen. It's a huge uh, storage chamber of their stomach where when they eat grass and swallow it. Is that R-U-M-I-N? Rumen, R-U-M-I-N-A-N-T, ruminant. Ruminant, okay, guys, ruminant. So the so, thing about four stomachs, no? Well, they have four sections of the stomach. Yeah. But, it, <clears throat> but it, there are microbes in the, in their rumen that break down the cellulose that is that grass. So when the cow does defecate, they, the uh, feces is very available to the microbes in the soil. If the grass was just trodden down, like you run over the lawnmower, mm -hmm. like that, mm -hmm. it takes a long time <clears throat> for that, the nutrients to be re-released into the soil. And actually much of it never gets back to the soil. It's oxidized mm -hmm. and goes up into the atmosphere. Right. So you know, it's, uh, it's, it's the way the earth evolved. You know, the earth evolved with big herds of ruminants. They're prey animals, whether it's buffalo in the Great Plains or uh, caribou in the tundra or uh, wildebeest or eland in the Serengeti Plains of Africa. And these prey animals, these ruminants, are moved across the landscape by predators, whether it's wolves moving buffalo or uh, polar bears moving caribou mm -hmm. <clears throat> or lions moving wildebeest. Mm -hmm. And, and they're, they're in constant movement. It's like a very slow chase mm -hmm. because these, these predators are behind the herd, keeping them pushed. Mm -hmm. They're bunched up. They're working their magic on the grass, mm -hmm. eating, trotting, defecating, urinating, in constant movement. So you have a, a, a hard, hard animal impact on every foot of land, but then they may not be back for a year. Mm -hmm. So it is a long, a hard impact on the land and a long recovery time. And that's the way the earth evolved. That's how the abundance got here. Mm -hmm. And what we do here is emulate that. I was going to say, it's, you mimic that here. We do. It's not the way I learned to raise cattle at the University of Georgia in the 70s, but it's what we do now, and it's much more effective, I think. So, you guys, I just want to, I want to repeat what you just said. That's not the way you learned to do it at UGA in the 70s, but this is the way you do it now. So you guys, if, if, you're, if you're unable, which is understandable, to grasp some of the truest meaning of what we're talking about here, you know, I always try to put this back into layman's terms on a level that we can all just, as everyday people, really understand what 
Will is saying, we're getting the science end, but you're getting the street end over here uh, from me. And I think it's really important what Will just said. It's not the way he learned to do it at UGA in the 1970s. That's not the way anybody learned it at UGA or anywhere else in the 1970s, which is what gave birth and, and, and rebirth and growth to factory farming today, which is, I can't say it enough, abominable in every sense of the word. I can't explain it enough. You guys only need to Google factory farming, abuse in factory farming, confinement in factory farming, all of those things. That is what the country taught everybody to do. But that's not the way to do it. It's not the way to do it today, and it's not what's happening here at White Oak Pastures. And it's so important for us all to pay attention to where we're getting our food sources from, because if it's not certified humane, it's not worth it. Okay, go on, Will. Oh. <laughs> I always wanna, I always wanna bring it to a level that people understand how it's affecting their lives. Because maybe some people don't really know that much about how you're mimicking what you were just talking about on the Serengeti and, and places like that. But at the end of the day, it's the most important aspect of all of our lives, is it not? Well, I will, I, I will bring a little clarity to, to one of the things that we said. <clears throat> you know, we, we, you mentioned factory farms several times, and, and you're right, we rail against factory farms here. And so often I've heard, had uh, people say, well, I mean, your farm is a big farm. Why isn't it a factory farm? And it's a good question, and here's the answer. You know, a factory farm is not about how big it is. No. A factory farm is about whether or not it's operated like a factory. Yes. You know, in uh, what, what, let's see, the factory model is very linear. Uh, the the uh, complex operation of a farm is very cyclical, not very linear. And what we have done over the last 75 years or so is applied the factory model from a linear manufacturing perspective to this very cyclical, natural perspective, and it, and it just didn't work well. <clears throat> you know, a factory farm is not how big it is. It's mm -mm. that we, you raise chickens at a chicken factory like you raise, make shirts in a shirt factory. Right. And pigs in a pig factory like you make... Uh, uh, you know, glasses in a glass factory. So, yeah. so it's uh, it's not about how big it is, uh, and you know, the the scaling up, the, making the process linear, was done so that it could be scaled up. Because you can scale up a complicated system, you can't scale up a complex system, and when you scale up. You generate economies of scale. You know mm -hmm. you can you can do it cheaper and more efficient. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, <clears throat> efficiency and resiliency are just about diametrically opposed to each other. Mm -hmm. the, the more you become efficient, the more you give up resiliency. And in the case of food production, the operation of our farms, uh, we have, we have traded all the resiliency for efficiency. We made food production incredibly cheap and efficient but you know during the the height of the pandemic uh, the, the uh, headlines on cnn one morning said 
the CEO of Tyson said the food chain is food production system is breaking. He was right. Mm -hmm. It was breaking. Mm -hmm. It was breaking because there was no resiliency there. The Mm -hmm. panic of the pandemic uh, rendered it ineffective. Mm -hmm. Um, Will was just talking about uh, what a factory farm actually is. And maybe I haven't explained that very much in the past. Uh, A factory farm doesn't mean a big, huge farm where animals are cared for. That's not what it is at all. And... I've said this so many times, I try not to post the graphic stuff, but please Google a factory farm so that you can know what it actually is. And another thing, you can be a small farm and you can have grass-fed cows 365 days a year, and that's great and that's wonderful for them. But if you are, in my opinion, just my opinion, if you are sending your cows out for slaughter and you're not handing that yourself, and you're not managing that yourself, that's just as detrimental to the cows, really, as what we see in factory farms. So I'm just saying that if you are a small farm, do it all the way. Find what it takes to house your own expiration house. I don't want to use the word slaughter. Find what it takes to, to create your own expiration house because that is the best way to treat animals. If you're not, if you're not watching them, from beginning to end, to end, then you're really doing them a disservice. And everything is done here at White Oak Pastures. Well, what do you think to, about what I just said? How hard is it for a small farm to get to the point where you all are at, where you've got this facility to see things to the very end? Well, uh, uh, to be sure, building a processing facility is, a, is an endeavor. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it was very capital intensive. Mm-hmm. Very highly regulated. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, you know you compete with big multinational corporations, so it, it's not something that should be taken lightly. Uh, but I certainly agree that uh, it's a part that's got to be handled. You know, mm-hmm. people don't buy cows and hogs and sheep; they buy beef and pork and lamb. Mm-hmm. So. And to be able to monetize what we do in the pasture, mm-hmm. you've got to make it marketable to consumers, and sadly that involves the further processing. Uh, you know, it, it, uh, uh, so often when farmers are considering, or people want to farm and they're considering doing it this way, and they spend so much time and effort focused on the production side of it. And that's, that's understandable. That's the fun part. That's what we all enjoy doing. Mm-hmm. But there are three legs on that stool. There's the production side in the pasture, like you and I have been looking at today. There is the processing where you turn it into a monetizable product, beef or pork or lamb or mm-hmm. chicken. Mm-hmm. And then there's the marketing and distribution because you've got to get it to the people who want it. And raising... Uh, Raising livestock and turning it into a marketable product, the way we do it, simply costs more. And when we give up the tools that reductionist science has given us to take cost out of production, we add cost back to production. Mm-hmm. That's the way that works. Mm-hmm. So you've got to find, or it's incumbent upon the producer, to find a market that will pay him the additional uh, cost of production or they won't be able to stay in business. 
And so that, that did. I really urge farmers to consider all three, production, processing, and marketing distribution, all three. So, so let's, let's talk about, before I found you guys, I, I visited a farm and they raised hens and chickens and they had mentioned you. And I had already found White Oaks before that, but they mentioned you guys and they were like, that's where you need to go and we, we'd like to have an operation like that. So if you were talking to a very, and I mean micro farmer like that, that you know, they don't have the capital or the ability to do everything at once. Like, how would you tell them to get to the point where you are in the smallest manner that they possibly could? So, <clears throat> there, there's, let me say this, there, there's no wrong scale. You can't, let me say this, I've seen little bitty tiny operations work and be successful and go great. You know, I've seen some really large operations <clears throat> work well and be successful. What's important is you get the right scale. So I would, uh, uh, first of all, you, you, find, um, uh, you find your market and you know, hopefully you'll be near a, an urban market like Atlanta or <clears throat> somewhere, so the, well, some of the big cities up and down the coast. Uh, you would not initially go into the, the beef business. You know, beef business is very land intensive, mm -hmm. it's very uh, capital intensive, it's, it's very slow, the money turns over very slowly. You know, the gestation period of a cow, I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. is 283 days from mm -hmm. the time the bull meets the cow, mm -hmm. 283 days before you have a calf. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and there's two years before that calf is old enough to monetize, to, 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 to slaughter. Mm -hmm. So uh, that wouldn't be your starting point. You know, you would start out with something like vegetables, eggs, chickens, chickens, uh, maybe small ruminants. Rabbits are great. Uh, small ruminants like uh, maybe sheep or goats. Okay, small ruminants. So you can, I mean, but you can, you know, what, the first thing you should find is your market. You know, what 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 will people buy from you? Okay. And then figure out what you can afford to do. Right. Okay. So, well, what about um, in regards to certified humane? It, it's, you know, rapidly becoming the coveted seal to have on your product in the grocery store. I know there are certain steps that need to be taken to get it. And I see a lot of it at Publix. And I want to openly call out Kroger for not carrying enough. I understand that some locations carry white oak pastures but I would like to see a whole lot more there. Kroger, if you could pick up your game, that would be great. Um, but in regards to certified humane, Will, how, it, how hard is it for the small farmer to become certified humane? <clears throat> I, don't, I don't think it's onerous at all. No. Uh, I think that uh, <clears throat> most, you know, I would like to think that most of these guys are probably doing all the right stuff now. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of going through the certification. <clears throat> so, uh, you know, I think that if, if you've got to change what you're doing dramatically to get the certification, you're, you're, on, right. you're on the wrong road to start with. And I really think that most of the people that you would be talking to here yeah. are probably already doing it correctly. It's probably mostly going to be a matter of documenting it. Okay. You know, the old saying is, if you don't write it down, it didn't happen. Sure, That's sure. very true with these certification, all the certifications. Right. <clears throat> and... Uh, Notifying them and having them come out. There's a there's a cost involved, and I, I can't tell you off the top of my head what it is, but it's not. It's not exorbitant. No, no I don't think so. Okay, yeah. 
So you guys, it's not that hard to attain certified humane. I think the, the, uh, the hidden message there is no excuse. There's really no excuse. It's not that difficult to get if you're doing all the right things already. So if you want the badge, you know what you should be doing. You guys, today, side note, um, I want to talk about, now we don't have dairy cows out here at White Oak Pastures. That's a whole different ball game. We do have a certified humane milk with heart dairy, but I just want to talk about uh, calves for one moment because in the dairy world, uh, calves are immediately separated from their mother. If you're a male calf, you're going to be expired immediately. You're not going to eat, drink, or anything. You're going on a truck and you're, you're going to a very bad place as an infant, underscore the word infant. But here at White Oak Pastures, there was just an infant born. And sometimes, as happens in the human world, happens in the natural world with cows too. And, and mom rejected this calf for whatever reason. And he's being bottle fed. And I got to meet him. He's, he's quite the rambunctious little guy, but so small and so cute and so innocent and chases after humans around here whenever he sees one. I wonder why. Could it be because humans treat him so well that he wants to be around them? I'm sure that's the reason why. Uh, Will, can you talk a little bit about uh, when this happens? I know it happens a few times a year when a calf is born <clears throat> and rejected, but why and what do you guys do? So we've got about 1,500 mama cows, and so we'll have about that many calves born every year. And as you pointed out, uh, as is true with people, uh, different cows have different levels of maternal instinct. And usually it's very, very high because we've selected for high levels of maternal, being good mamas mm -hmm. for many, many, many generations. These cows are the daughters, granddaughters, great-granddaughters, of <clears throat> the cattle I've owned here. It's mm -hmm. closed herd. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but occasionally, and, and really, uh, you can almost have too much maternal instinct where the, the mama will uh, have a baby calf, a little 60, 70-pound baby calf, mm -hmm. and there's a 500-pound yearling nursing at the same <laughs> teat. Right. And that does not go well for right. the baby calves. <clears throat> so we have to be careful of that. Yeah. And that's, that's what I call excessive maternal instinct. But we know how to manage for it. We mm -hmm. just be sure we've taken that year, year old calf off before the baby gets here. Right. <clears throat> There's a, a much smaller number, a much smaller percentage of cows that are on the other end of the spectrum and just don't have the maternal instinct. And I don't know why that occurs. But <clears throat> occasionally there will be a cow. It's usually a, a heifer, a, a first calf mm -hmm. cow. We'll have a calf, and you know, maybe it just hurts so darn bad she wants to get away from it. You know, I don't, I don't know how all that works, but she will not take the calf, mm. she'll just walk off and leave it. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, uh, we will, you know, take the calf and, and bottle feed it. We'll give it colostrum, which is the first milk, sure. and then we'll feed it uh, milk from then till it's, <clears throat> you know, it's eating solid food, which will be five or six months later. So he'll be bottle fed for five or six months. Depending on when he starts eating feed, yeah. Now when you, he has to be acclimated back into the herd, yes? Yeah, but if you put him back in with uh, other calves mm -hmm. that are about his age, mm -hmm. it's not an issue. 
Oh, okay. So he'll yeah. just fit right in. Yeah. And yeah. those calves yeah. that he's put in with are already we- weaned in the first place, right? So nobody's... We'll put, put him in with them when they're all being weaned together, Perfect. all about the same age. So he won't know the difference. But, so say he's out in the herd, will he always be uh, Will he always be the one that's not afraid of humans? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and he, they don't, yeah that, that part's always there. You know, he's, yeah. You know, he thinks that, uh, he thinks you're his mama. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I was spending time with him in the yard, and wherever I went, he was right behind me. And as little as he is, he's a strong little thing. But the point of me talking about that, you guys, is that it's just what you see here is the idyllic storybook life that you would think a farm is when you go to a restaurant and you see the little red barn and the this decor and that decor. Those things that you think of are exactly the things that are going on here and not what's going on at factory farms, not what's going on at farms who are not managing their cattle from day one to last day. So anything else is not good enough. That's what I think. What do you think? I think what you think. <laughs> Will thinks what I think. All right, what else? We're at 31. Let's see. What is your one, man? I don't know. There's so much I don't know. I mm. mean, I mean. No, there's a lot you know. You, you, you're very impressive. Really? I feel, yeah. like I, I, I feel like I've only skimmed the surface with no, you. You know a lot more than me. I'm a lot older than you. You guys, Will and I are talking about who knows more, me or <laughs> <laughs> I think it's him, but I try to speak to you guys in a way that you're going to understand it because I know how the how I understand it and how it sits with me. And some of this stuff is quite frankly way over my head when we talk about when you start talking about the carbon emissions from yes, when you start talking about that stuff, I I get a little lost. Can you can you water that down to about a second grade level? You're way, you're way beyond second grade level, but uh, for the people and, and so, for me. So, uh, so what's happened over the last <clears throat> seventy-five or eighty years, or, or whatever, however long we've been extracting and burning fossil fuels, mm-hmm. is we have put a lot of carbon back up into in, green, in the form of greenhouse gases mm-hmm. back up into the atmosphere. And that had previously been sequestered as fossil fuel in the land. And not just fossil fuel. We've also, through uh, tillage and other reductive farming practices, re- released a lot of the carbon that was, that was stored in the topsoil in the form of organic matter. Mm-hmm. I told you our soil here has gone from a half percent to five percent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, 5% of 2 million pounds of soil, which is what you've got in a, an acre of topsoil, mm-hmm. that's a lot of carbon. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of carbon. In fact, we think we're sequestering the equivalent of about seven barrels of crude oil per acre per year, pulling it down out of the, out of the atmosphere in the form of greenhouse gases. So wow. how does that work? Yeah, how, how does, work? yeah. <clears throat> okay, Tell so, everyone how that's good. So you learned in, in junior high school science about photosynthesis, you know, that the, right, uh, sure. whereas you and I breathe in air and, take, and we take the oxygen out right. and release carbon dioxide. Yeah. We blow that back out. Yeah. 
<clears throat> the opposite is true with plants. They're the yin to our yang. Right. When, when they, photos, they breathe, when they're photosynthesizing, they actually have stomata that open up and pull in air. Right. <clears throat> and they take the carbon, some of the carbon out of the air, and breathe out oxygen. The opposite of what we do. Right, right. <clears throat> so when they, when they do that, they, they, that carbon is bound to that plant as part of that plant. Mm -hmm. You know how you can take, uh, you could take uh, 25 pounds of soil mm -hmm. and put it in a pot and put it in your living room by the window. Mm -hmm. And you could plant a little bitty perennial plant like bamboo mm -hmm. in it. Right. And in a few years, you would have a huge bamboo plant. You would. But all the soil is still there. Yeah. So where'd all that where'd all that bamboo come from? Where'd all that tissue come from? Right. Where did it? It came from the carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases that it breathed in, held the carbon, and put the oxygen back out. So you see how that's a good thing. So that's what happens in a perennial pasture. And the fact that the cattle are grazing it just further exacerbates that. It makes it happen more, better, quicker, more efficiently. And that carbon that the uh, is the that is sequestered bound into that plant tissue that's in the soil. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is in roots, and that's under the ground. It'll be there for a long, 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 long time. Long, long time. Until it's released, and, and it's released when we till it. Well, if we never till it, it doesn't get released. So, in addition, the soil gets deeper and deeper. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the, uh, in the deep south here where we are on the coastal plain, we pretty much used up all our topsoil. Mm -hmm. We're farming the subsoil. Mm -hmm. But contrary to what uh, I learned in my soils classes 50 years ago, 40 years ago, you can build soil. You can make the soil deeper and deeper and deeper because that, that carbon in the form of that plant tissue is... Then the point is plant growing living plant tissue, then it's plant matter on the soil, mm -hmm. then eventually it is uh, uh, organic matter, then eventually it's humus. So it, you're building the soil. So when you do that, the only place that carbon can come from is out of the, out of the greenhouse gases. You don't go to the carbon store and get some carbon and bring it out there. Right. You right. grow the carbon okay. through plant photosynthesis. Gosh, it's still so complicated, but I can grasp it a little mm -hmm. bit, and I hope you guys can too, because this is this is all about how it should be. And I think, you know, with time passing, it I I see I see in ten years a huge impact uh, against factory farming. I see a dent happening in factory farming in the next 10 or so years, maybe less. I mean, everybody I think is in a state right now where many of us are walking around shopping at Whole Foods because we think that's the thing we're supposed to do. So we grab this and we grab this and that. And I don't, I, I'm not knocking anybody that shops at Whole Foods because I actually love Whole Foods, but I think we have to pay attention to why we're shopping at Whole Foods, why we're shopping for uh, organic foods, this, that, and the other. Know really why you're doing it. Why you're doing it, it, it comes down to what's happening at places like White Oak Pastures. That's why. So you have to, if you're going to call yourself an educated consumer, 
that entails more than just walking into Whole Foods or Publix or, or some of these places that do carry organic brands. I know Publix has its own brand, but it's more than that. You can't just walk around saying, I do this and I do that. No, why you're doing it. This is the ABCs of why you're doing it. And spread the word, spread to your friends, educate your friends, uh, get people to think about what they're eating what they're buying, what they're pulling off the shelves, because if you're not really, really, really thinking about it, then you're not really, really caring about the environment or animals. That's just my opinion. I'm very opinionated today, but I just feel like I have to repeat myself so much to get people to listen, and uh, sometimes they do. I have a lot of interested, believe it or not, clients that come into the store uh, where I work as a designer at Pottery Barn, and uh, some of them are we get on the subject, don't ask me how, of uh, what we eat, and some of them are very interested in exactly what you do and have heard our podcast. So I think word is getting out, and I think we're going to see a big change, don't you? Uh, I, I hope so, and I appreciate your efforts towards making that happen. Well, know? I appreciate yours. You're, you're the action man. I'm the talk girl, and mm-hmm. you're the action guy. You know, uh, you know, I'm not an evangelist, and uh, we do need, you know, the, so whether or not this form of food production does become increasingly a thing is entirely in the hands of the consumer. Yes, yes. And I mean, it won't happen because big companies decide to do it. It won't happen because farmers just choose to do it. It won't happen because, certainly not because our uh, politicians set regulations that way. That's, it's not going to happen. If it happens, it'll be a consumer-driven movement. Mm-hmm. And you know, going out and informing consumers is not my skill set. I mean, I'm delighted to talk to you about it when you're here. But you know, I'm not on the speaker circuit, and, mm. and we won't be. So right. part of that... We that, need you here doing what you're doing. Yeah, that consumer education is, is essential, and thank you for your role in doing that. Well, you are welcome, Will, and thanks for having us out to get again. And you guys, uh, this was, we're going to do two more podcasts in this little three-part series that we've invented here. And today, really, most of the focus was on the regenerative farming and what it means to the soil and the atmosphere and, in turn, ultimately, you and your body. So, over and out, and we will talk to you guys soon. Will, thanks again. Thank you, Kristen. Appreciate you coming. All right. See you soon, my friend. What do you think? I got to tell you, I love being interviewed by you. Really? I'm telling you. I was like... You are so much smarter than you are. No, you're so much smarter than me. 